6: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now we bring you our Women of True Grit series. Our friend Edie Hand has come across many women whose stories of hardship, character, and perseverance caused her to write a book called Women of True Grit. Now Edie is bringing some of those women, along with many others, to our airwaves. Today, Edie brings us the story of Mary Sparks, a tale of faith and family as told by her son, Sparky. Here's Edie.
7: Mary Sparks exhibited strength of conviction throughout her life. But oddly enough, it all started with an affair a stolen baby, and her Catholic faith. Here's her son, Sparky, to recount his mother's tale.
8: I guess the time to start this story is in 1943. My mother fell in love with a married man who was about to ship off to the war.
7: Mary couldn't bear the idea of losing her love, so she attempted to join the Women's Army Corps, a WAX for short.
8: And when she joined the wax, she took her physical, and found out she was pregnant. My grandfather, great Polish gentleman, he shipped her to Chicago to a home for unwed mothers where she worked like a dog for several months and then had my sister my sister who always made fun of me growing up and told me I was adopted. My grandmother took the train from Terre Haute, Indiana to Chicago to pick up my mother who had just had this child. And my mother had been very weak and very, really, I, I think she—they were they abused her from the standpoint of making her cook and clean for other people in this home So my mother and grandmother had put my sister up for adoption, and the people were supposed to be there that afternoon to pick up my sister. But on the way to the train station, neither could shake the feeling that something just wasn't right. And my mother said, I can't give up this baby, I just can't do it, and my grandmother said, "Well." your father is not gonna let us come home with a baby. We have to give up this child. And my mother said, do you wanna give up the child? And my grandmother said, no, I don't want to. And my grandmother, who didn't speak English very well, Polish was her first language, told the cab driver to turn around when they got to the train station. And they went back to this home, walked in the door, the people who were adopting my sister were there to pick her up, and my mother just went in, grabbed my sister, and she and my grandmother ran down the steps, back into the cab, and fired off toward the train station. My grandmother, as they were running out, grabbed all the paperwork she could get a hold of with both hands and held it to her. And then they sorted it out on the train and, and destroyed it.
7: But then they had Sparky's grandfather, Mary's father, to deal with. But that wouldn't be much of a problem.
8: So then they got home to Terre Haute. My grandmama just told him he was just going to have to get used to it.
7: A year or two later, a World War II prisoner of war returned home to Indiana and began courting Mary
8: but she felt like she had to hide her child out of shame. There's several stories of her hiding my sister from him when he would come pick her up for a date. My, my grandmother and grandfather ran a boarding house.
7: And while that provided useful cover for a while, it only had to fail once for the gig to be up.
8: After they got serious and they started dating, my dad came in one day unannounced and there was my sister in a playpen. And my dad said, who is this baby? And my mother started crying and said, this is my child. And my dad said, well, who's the father? And my mother said, he has gone away. My dad looked down at her and said, well, this child needs a father. So I guess we need to get married, Mary." And that's how he proposed to mom. My sister found out all of this because this was a big secret in our family. We didn't know this story until my sister, when she was about 22, tried to get a passport. And she said, I was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they told her, called her back the next day and said, Miss. Bauer, you were born in Chicago. What? You were born at a uh, home for unwed mothers, and my my sister, who had tormented me all my life, tell me I was adopted. Uh, we, you know, and then we started finding out all this story. I always thought that my sister was treated a little bit differently than the other kids, and both. All the brothers and sisters on the Spark side of the family, 11 of them, and all the brothers and sisters on the Cummins, which is, they had Americanized from Kaminsky, uh, side of the family, uh, kept this uh, secret from all his kids growing up. Nobody knew. And nobody needed to know.
7: His parents didn't want any undue attention. And more than that, his father wanted his sister Sharon. To have a loving home, full of love,
6: conviction, and grit. And more of this remarkable story, an amazing love story. Our Women of True Grit series continues Mary Sparks' story after these messages. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. we're back with our American stories and our women of sure grit series and Mary sparks story her boyfriend when he found out that her daughter born out of wedlock didn't have a father proposed on the spot and raised the daughter as his own now we bring you the rest of Mary's story of faith and family told again by her son Sparky here's Edie
7: the sparks family had no shortage of children Seven, to be exact. And as good Catholics, you'd expect that. Mary and Jesse did their best to raise their kids well, with faith and family at the heart of all they did. But in
8: 1973,
7: that all would be put to the test.
8: I was a student at uh, the University of Alabama. It was on a, uh, a Thursday morning in the spring. I get a call from my mother and my mother said, I need you home. And I said, well, okay, Uh, spring break is in a couple of months and I'm planning on coming home to the farm. And she said, no, I need you home today. I said, what's going on? Is dad okay? Your father's fine and uh, I need you home. And I said, mama, I've got a test tomorrow, Friday. I said, I've got a test. She said, tell your professor that you've got a family emergency and you need to come home. I need you to be with me for a few days. Are you sick? No. And dad's okay? Yeah. What's the, what will I tell him the emergency is? I'm sure if you just tell him there's a family emergency, he'll let you take your test next week. I had the toughest professor on just about on campus teaching music history, Dr. Nicolosi. I, I knew I was dead. That afternoon went to see him, and I said, I have a family emergency. I'll be glad to take the test right now, but my mother has asked for me to be home in Indiana, and I've got to leave. And he said, You just take the test next week and don't worry about it. If this is for your mother and it's a family emergency, then you need to go. I was sure that that man did not have a heart up until that point but I became convinced that maybe he was okay. Got in my car, drove through the night. You know, I was in shock, the whole thing, when I got in the car. I mean, I was so relieved when I got there to see all my brothers were okay because I knew something happened to somebody and she just wasn't telling me. I mean, I was pretty sure I was coming up there for a funeral of some kind.
7: What a relief it was to find out That wasn't the case. And yet there was still that burning question that even
8: Sparky's siblings were asking. Why are you home? I said, I don't know. Mama wants me home, what's going on? She said, well, Daddy, the last two nights, Daddy slept in the barn. What is going on? We don't know. So we had this big breakfast. My mother had this huge plate of bacon and eggs and ham. And she said, here, take this out to the barn for your father. And I said, why is he sleeping out in the barn? Are you two getting divorced? She said, we're Catholic. We don't get divorced. Take this out to your father. I said, okay, I'm headed out to the barn. Hey, daddy, he said, I thought you might be coming home. I said, What's going on? He said, I'm sure your mother will tell you when she's ready for you to know. Little did Sparky know
7: that he wasn't just going to find out what was going on, but also the depths of his mother's convictions and the lengths that she would go to in order to follow through with them.
8: So after breakfast and clean up, everybody's out doing their chores and mother said, come with me. We've got to go somewhere. We got in the car. I said, please tell me what's going on. She said, your father's had an affair with this young lady and he's gotten her pregnant. I need to talk her into giving us this baby so I can raise it right. So get in the car, let's go. She said, I just don't want you to say anything. So we drove to this lady's house, young lady, It was a small town. I knew her, and uh, we got to her house, her apartment, and she answered the door. She said, what do you want? My mother said, I'm Mary Sparks. You've been having an affair with my husband. I understand you're pregnant. She said, yes, I am. And I want to talk to you, please. May we come in? She said, this is my son, Sparky. She said, I know him. I said, well, we went in, we sat down and she said, so here's the deal. She said, I will pay for all your expenses. She said, I'll give you $3,000 today. When the child is born, I'll give you $5,000. When the child is born and you sign the paper for us to adopt him. She said, how do you know it's gonna be a boy? She said, we're Sparks's, that's all we have. She said, I'll raise him right. If you ever wanna be in his life, you can be. And she said, I know you probably don't feel too good about what you've done, but I'm not worried about that. She said, that's for God to decide, judge, not me. She said, will you pay my rent? She said, yes, I'll pay all your expenses pay your hospital bills, I'll pay everything. And when the child is born, and we adopt, and I know you're okay, then it ends, and we'll take the child to raise, and I'll raise it as my, my own child. She said, all right. She said, have you got the money now? She said, of course, I got it right here in my purse. And I said, I've got the paperwork. We signed it. We went by the attorney's office, had him notarize it. That's the way my brother, Jake, came into the world. He knew he was adopted from day one. All my brothers did, but we also knew that we would treat him just like any other brother. And we did.
7: Once again, the Sparks family, in the face of infidelity, was given a gift. And due to their faith, took a child in and accepted it without question as their own.
8: Years later, I went to play golf with my dad. I said, I gotta ask you, did you and mom resume relations with each other? He said, of course. He said, it took two or three months, but your mother was tough as nails, but She always said that God would judge me. It wasn't her place to judge me. And we were married. I was her husband. She was my wife. That's just the way it was. There was a moment in time that I forgave your mother. And years later, she forgave me.
6: And thanks to Edie Hand for the work there, and thanks for Sparky. What a remarkable story, and Mary Sparks, what a remarkable woman, and great job on the production, Robbie, just a beautiful job. And by the way, our lives are all messy, but if this is any testimony to what a a true Christian walk looks like, this is it. And it's forgiveness, folks, and it's hard to do, but it's what obedient people of faith do. And my goodness, in other families, this would have been a divorce and a mess, and who knows what would have happened to that child. And in this family, the child is loved. I'll raise him right, Mary Sparks said to this poor young girl. Life's tough. But how you deal with these circumstances, we can learn from stories like these. And the relationship got healed. The wife forgave. He forgave himself, too, because in the end, the guy's got to forgive himself. And of course, their God well, forgave both of them. Mary Sparks' story on our American story. This is Our American Stories, and now we have a story from Leslie Leyland Fields. She's an author and speaker that lives in Alaska. We often forget about Alaska. It's an entirely different world apart from our 48 contiguous states. Leslie is bringing us a small taste of her home, by telling us the story of their little fishing town's first telephone. Here's Leslie.
4: We got our first phone in 1989. It cost $5,000 and took a week to install. We had to do part of the work ourselves. Erect a 50-foot aluminum pole with four guy wires, each 100 feet long, tied into pilings that we sank and cemented into holes as deep as we could dig. It was a lot of work for something I didn't want. One of the great boons of living out on an island in the Gulf of Alaska had been having no telephone to answer. My obligations in the town of Kodiak, our winter home, could be shed the minute I climbed into the bush plane to get to that island, where I go every summer to work in our family-owned commercial fishing operation My friends all knew that the only way to communicate with me from June to September was by mail, slow mail. Letters had to endure many layovers in many terminals, the last one the worst of all because the post office was 30 minutes away by skiff and we went only once a week. Thus I was spared having to invent excuses for belated replies. But in 1989, Among the buildings that shelter our extended family of 15, plus seven employees, the cabin where my husband and I live was singled out for the installation of this new technology. The decision was logical, I grant. Our cabin sits on the open south end of the island with no overhead bluffs, no land masses to interfere with the radio waves, just a straight shot out in all directions. But here was the catch. Since all costs and resources are shared among us, communally, this was not to be my private phone. I was to be the message taker and phone slave for 22 people, all with relationships, creditors, lovesick girlfriends, or worried mothers. I did not want this role. We were considerably behind other fishing camps in the bay and getting a phone. Our neighbors a mile across the water had had one for four years already by the time we got ours. In fact, we often motored over in our skiffs to use it, though always sheepishly. When we couldn't face them yet again, we would make a run to Larson Bay, where a phone was available, but not easily so, in the community center. Until 1983, when private phones were installed for the first time, the entire village of then 120, like other villages in remote Alaska, had a single phone. It was a satellite phone with a characteristic delays and tinny echoes that signaled a call from very far away. In the summer, when the village was full of fishermen and cannery workers, The phone was always attended by a queue, at least 10 people long, and each person was limited to five minutes. I felt sorriest for the year-round residents, who had to endure the summer takeover and line up with everyone else. We overheard a lot of news as we stood in that line, and some family secrets, and mostly learned to use verbal shorthand when our turn came. For those early summers, that was the communications drill. Drive the skiff to Larson Bay, if not to the neighbors, weather permitting, walk half a mile to the community center, and stand in line for 50 minutes to get five. We were all grateful for that one phone, though, especially those of us who remembered the pre-satellite days before 1980, When the only link between the village and the outside world was a single sideband radio. In the years since its installation, our telephone has fully lived up to my expectations. Although our number is listed in the phone book and has seven digits, just like everyone else's, I describe it as a radio for the sake of the uninitiated. Who, without this important qualifier would expect conversation as usual. Calling it by its technical name a half-duplex radiophone would do little to describe its features and flaws. The body is a small black box the size of a videocassette with a cord and a mouthpiece like those of a CB or any other handheld radio. The numbers are not on the body but on the mouthpiece which also serves as earpiece and receiver using it is indeed like radio communication you key the mic pressing a button to speak and then releasing it when finished only one person can speak at a time both voices the callers and the receivers are broadcast into the room the caller usually unknowingly, is speaking aloud to three entire households. This is most unfortunate when lovesick crewmen take to the airways. So in love are they, however, that even if they know their impassioned messages are bleeding into three living rooms, they alter their conversation in neither content nor length. Despite the phone part of this apparatus, my husband still operates it as though it were a radio. When it rings, rather than answer with a cordial, hello, Fields residence, as he does in town, he answers with a terse, this is Harvester Island. That is not mere eccentricity. Here, where you live is who you are. On the VHF radio, we call one another not by name, but by Distinguishing Landmark, Prominent Mound, Little River Rock, Rocky Beach, Chief Cove, Hook Point. Everyone in the Bay knows that Hook Point is the Larson's. Rocky Beach is the Hoy's. Rocky Beach is going to host the Fourth of July picnic this year, we might say. But an outsider doesn't expect to be answered on a phone by an island. The phone is not always innocent, it lacks timing and occasionally seems to harbor malicious intent. No matter how accurately I dial, it will occasionally call other numbers at random. When trying to reach my sister in New Hampshire, I rang up a pet store in California. When calling a bookstore in Anchorage, I got a women's resource center somewhere in Washington. Worse, The phone may simply cease operating, shutting down in mid-syllable, especially when someone is giving precise directions or important deadlines, but no click or any other sound signals the disconnection. The person at the other end merrily chats along until she finally realizes that there has been no returning beep to signal a successful transmission. And sometimes I can still hear her when she can no longer hear me.
6: And you're listening to Leslie Leyland Fields. And this is a small taste of Alaska. Her little fishing town's first telephone. The story about that and so much more. And by the way, we're looking for these kinds of stories from your town. Big town, small town, and everything in between. Whatever hamlet or precinct you're from in this great country. We like to bring it all to you. We don't have a bias towards big or small, east or west or north or south. It's all America to us. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and share your stories with us. When we come back, more of Leslie Leyland Fields' story about her fishing town's first telephone. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author, speaker, and teacher, Leslie Leyland field She lives in Alaska and has been brilliantly telling the story of their small fishing town's first telephone that connected them to the rest of the world. Back to Leslie.
4: Most hobbling to real communication is the delay in transmission. If you tell something you hope is humorous or dramatic, you have to tell it all at once. You never separate a joke from its punchline or a story from its denouement, if you're talking on the radio phone. You cast it out whole into the void of space and then wait the full three seconds for the response. In the best of circumstances, timing is hopelessly out of joint only morse code not spoken english is equipped to deal with such pauses and interruptions our radio phone then like the early telegraph wires is not for relationships or entertainment but for information only i didn't want a phone in 1989 because I already had a radio with all of its attendant blessings and curses Voices from the VHF and the CB filled my house. Most of them voices I didn't want to hear. Many of them the voices of people I didn't know. A skipper on a fishing boat yelling to his skiff man, Get away from the rocks! Or a float plane calling a fishing camp to ask for the best place to land. For five years running, our radio picked up a trucker somewhere in the deep south who was using a booster an amplifying unit so powerful it was illegal. This racket was most obnoxious on net-mending days when we put the radio on an outside speaker so that we wouldn't miss any calls while we worked on the beach. Then the Mississippi trucker Glossolalia, impenetrable except for the occasional 10-4, harassed us with an unsettling clash of cultures. He clearly was talking on the radio just to talk. The content of his utterances was not the point. For us, thousands of miles away, the radio was only for content, terse bits of information. To be helplessly bathed in this verbal overflow, this abuse of the airwaves on which we were so dependent, irritated us all. When we hit our threshold, the radio went off and no one in the world could reach us, no matter how they tried. When a call comes for me on the radio, I feel a certain drama and a sense of being part of a community. But when I'm on the radio phone, I'm aware that my voice is breaking someone else's silence, filling other people's rooms whether they like it or not. Paradoxically, we live in privacy and isolation go days and weeks without seeing anyone outside our camp, and yet our every conversation through the airwaves is communal. Because of our seclusion, I get my news weeks late, and I miss every summer Olympics, and yet I know that Jeannie, across the bay, has recommended St. John's wort to Michelle, who lives another bay away. What bush-dwellers ask from the communications revolution is not just working phone lines, but also privacy. Radios, of course, are public by nature. Our VHFs have enough crystals in them to receive and broadcast from about 100 channels. A grossly excessive number, I thought at first, but I soon saw how small the airwaves could be. One boat captain unofficially claims one channel as his. We claim one as ours, The rest of the bay stands by on channel 69. The Coast Guard has channel 16, and so it goes. Even with nearly 100 choices, it is hard to find a quiet, obscure spot to chat with a friend. And it's nearly impossible to get there unnoticed. It works like this. You call your friend on the area's main channel. Bird Rock, this is Harvester Island. Wait for response. Nothing. Try again. Bird Rock, Harvester, you got it on there, Sandy. The radio crackles, and then you hear, "Yeah, Harvester Island. This is Bird Rock. How you doing, Leslie? Great. Want to go to seventy-one? Roger." Pause. We both turn our dials. You there? Yeah, got gotcha, you solid. How's it going? And then we talk. But neither of us is deluded into thinking that we are alone. Anywhere within earshot, bored people, maybe 12, maybe 3, or on a sunny day, maybe just one, heard us giving our address and jumped up to switch their radios to the same place. If Sandy is someone I talk with regularly, we will have established our own channel, referred to obliquely as the other one. But even when we pre-arrange a secret channel, we can never get there alone. Every radio comes equipped with a scanner that can halt at and lock onto even the faintest throat clearing. My secret channel is probably scanned like all the rest. Every time I call on the radio or the phone, which can be also picked up by scanners, I know I may be Comedy Central or Days of Our Lives to some rapt, unseen audience. I have been on fishing boats where, untethered from the voices and the melodramas of TV and talk radio, the crew tunes in to local theater instead. Knowing this, I have developed a little test to monitor my conversation's borders. When talking on either apparatus, if I suddenly envision a gaggle of fishermen around a galley table snorting at my revelation, or worse, nodding their heads and saying, hmm, that's not surprising. I could see that about her in a second. Then I know I've said too much. The larger the imagined audience, the greater the perceived blood spill. My chagrin is only momentary, however. Though I hope for privacy on the phone, I don't really expect privacy on a radio, nor does anyone else. We all set up boundaries between the personal and the public. Our radiophone lasted from 1989 to 2018. The company stopped making them 20 years ago, but we kept ours going by hook, crook, and by cannibalizing our neighbors discarded radio phones, who gave up on them years before we did. Last month, we took the little black box off its perch on our table, pulled down the rusted antenna in our front yard, and reluctantly dropped it in the non-recyclables, mumbling a few words of thanks. We have a satellite phone now that cost a bundle that sits on the same table in its own briefcase It has its own peculiarities, and it costs nearly a dollar a minute to use. The phone bill at the end of every month makes us misty-eyed for that confounded radio phone that was at least dirt cheap. But the spirit of the radio phone lives on in our internet system, which we installed 15 years ago. Now we're connected to the rest of the world, sometimes depending on the weather, how steady our power supply, the atmosphere, sunspots, and whether or not we're thinking happy thoughts. All this keeps us humble, frustrated, intermittent citizens of the world here on our remote island in Alaska. Will our new communication system ruin us? Will it change our sense of place? I remember back to that first month with our radio phone. An oily loan officer was trying to sell me a home improvement package, but the blurts and beeps of the radio phone unnerved him so thoroughly that he accidentally lapsed into real human speech. I laughed. Clean air, 3,000 miles, an island of mountains and our own fragile brand of technology had translated his manipulative message with perfect clarity. And suddenly, it was all right to have a phone.
6: And you've been listening to author, speaker, and teacher, Leslie Leyland Fields. A beautiful story about a town, well, quite different than the rest of the towns around this country. But in the end, it's almost to look back at how we used to live, and how some are choosing deliberately to live, even in these modern times. And I know a lot of you listening are thinking, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice? Leslie Leyland-Fields' story, the story of her remote and small fishing town in Alaska, here on Our American Stories.